Hi, and welcome to episode 26 of Let Them Eat Cake. My name is John. My co-hosts are Jack and Ace. And Jack, why don't you tell us what we're doing this week? So uh, this week we speak to Drew Pavlou, who is a um, an activist and student from Queensland, Australia. We talk about his activism. We talk about China. We talk about Chinese infiltration into Australia. We talk about how the Chinese government is actively subverting Australian politics. And we talk a, a bit about that and sort of how China impacts Australia overall. It's a very Australia-heavy episode today, but the information given is good and it is insightful to understand the issues that Australia faces with China, as I believe, and I'm sure Drew would agree, that we are the tip of the spear when it comes to Chinese influence. Um, they have a lot of power here. They have a lot of control here. We also talk about the Confucius Institute, which is a very concerning thing, which I'm sure that everyone's heard about um, if you haven't watched the show. Drew is was also just a very enthusiastic guest, so even if you may struggle to gather information from it, I'm sure you'll find him entertaining. Yes. Okay, so let's go over some uh, headlines this week. I'm going to start with expiration of Title 42. Very weird time on the internet because the people were like using countdown clocks like it was going to be like a mad dash invasion. Fox News. Oh, it was more than Fox News. It was like everyone. Like, I, like, oh, was uh, it really? So many people are getting chewed out. Uh, like, yeah, it's all these Twitter fake news journalists, like, you know, they're all named something like something alert. You know what I mean? I'm going to change my name to Ace Alert. Ace Alert. Ace Alert. They're like three hours until Title 42 expires. And, and I think for anyone who doesn't understand what title 42 is the best vocabulary to make it make sense i would use is it's catch and release and you know it's derogatory a little bit to say it like that but that's one of the things that they repeat they're referring to the policy when they say terms like that especially on like anti-immigration uh type channels basically when we deny asylum you like can't apply for it again in five years so it prevents people from like Basically, if they cross again, they have to avoid ICE for like five years. So during COVID, we didn't put um, a five-year bar because we were just like basically denying everyone asylum because it was a health emergency. This a policy was put in place under Trump. Biden ran on a platform of getting rid of it, and he tried to do it, and the Supreme Court blocked him. So there's a lot of like question about what's going to be next with Title Eight and these things, but. Any way you slice it, if you're pro-immigration, it's not going to be good. If you're anti-immigration, it's not going to be an, uh, extreme enough for you. So you're, uh, you can't win no matter what side of the coin you're on. But one of the things that we've been seeing, I think even Lauren Bobart has been pushing this, is the statistic where migrant rates dropped after Title 42 expired. And it's because uh, the peak was 11,000 people going through 24 hours before Title 42 expired because they wanted to get in ahead of it. Because then if they do get sent back, they don't get the five-year lockout. So even this whole counting down and like drumming up and like Ted Cruz going over to the border being like, they're going to cross once this expires and it's Joe Biden's fault. They're crossing the entire time. They never stopped crossing. So the peak was 11,000. That's abnormally high for people who come over our borders in one day. Um, normally we don't exceed the births that are done that day with how many people come over the border. And um, 
I think a record number of people were deported under Title 42. I think there was something like over 3 million deportations under Title 42. It's hard to say what's going to happen. But regardless, it's going to just generally make sure that we keep migrants scared so they don't like report that they're, you know, working slave labor with children. That's kind of the tactic. And that's why NAFTA exists. And while we're on the topic of labor, well, it doesn't exist uh, anymore, but that's why NAFTA yeah. was created. <laughs> while while we're on the topic of labor, uh, another thing relating to immigration and migrant labor in general was that Ron DeSantis in the uh, state of Florida passed a new immigration bill recently, which exact name I'm kind of blanking on, but one of the He's passed uh, a lot of crazy bills. He he has, world. and what what this uh what one of the things that this bill is attempting to do is to kind of. I guess you could say, for lack of a better term, weed out whatever, quote unquote, like illegal migrant labor might still be working in Florida. And for our viewers who may not understand how the U.S. operates, oftentimes companies and construction contractors and things of that sort, uh, agricultural uh, uh, companies will get this migrant labor, usually from Mexico, El Salvador, wherever else. And um, yeah, and also just specifically them. with asylum, we don't see a lot of Mexicans <laughs> doing the asylum crossing illegally, you know, so people who are getting asylum aren't coming from Mexico right now. They are, yeah. but we're seeing a different proportion than we normally do. Yeah, and basically with like this, uh, this migrant labor, it's it's like they, they, they pay them pretty much dirt cheap um, and have them co construct buildings, pick you know, produce, thing, things things of that nature for very cheap, and they could get a lot of them to kind of do it. Now that DeSantis is trying to quote-unquote weed this out, a lot of construction sites in like the Florida area, for example, you'll see in like Miami are just absolutely barren, like nobody is working on them. And to protest this, a lot of his, Hispanic or uh, people of Hispanic descent who work in the trucking industry are refusing to deliver groceries through Florida. So you see these like... Uh, the video going around is not showing that. It's not depicting that. It's depicting a unit that has failed. So it's a refrigeration unit that they had to pull all the product off that they have to repair. And people started passing this around as proof oh. that the protest is working. But that's not that's okay. not the case. We won't, okay. we won't really so... know for a little while. And um, one of the things, if the, one of the things specifically, it, it has to do um, with ID laws. That so basically, because a lot of these um, a lot of these truckers are not U.S. citizens, they're not going to have like U.S. ID. And it's basically a policy of discrimination meant to like basically target a specific type of person, someone who doesn't have ID. And so that's why the truckers are upset about it. But it's it's, it's I think. I don't know how it's the thing is, is I don't know how many trucks are actually getting through because there might be other, they might just call a different company to come bring it. You know, it's, it's if you have a strike, there's always going to be scabs to get through. All right. So that, that just kind of further contextualizes uh, what I was, what I was saying. That's kind of a good pickup there. Okay. And the bill the, is, the bill is one seven one eight. Yeah. It's, it's like a number. Yeah. <laughs> Does it say SB beforehand? SB 1718 mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, require employers with 25 employees or more to use 
e-verify system. Force hospitals and emergency departments that accept Medicaid to collect patients' immigration status. Criminalize those who travel with a person who is uh, with, basically you can't travel with somebody who has an immigration status. Um, prohibit funding community ID programs. Um, invalidate legally issued out-of-state driver's license for those without a regulated immigration status. That's the thing that specifically truckers are upset about right there. And also it's affecting migrant labor in Florida in general. So it's like, I don't know why capitalists are going to continue backing them. Like you're fucking with the orange industry now. Isn't that like Florida's biggest export? Yeah. Like Disneyland is their biggest employer. He's already done like antagonized them. He may be quieter and, and dorkier than Trump, but like his policies are insane. I mean, Trump's were too. But the thing it's is, crazy Trump, that Trump was limited started. because he didn't know how government worked. Yes. That's, uh, that's yeah, a very good uh, point. I think we discussed this on a on a episode we recently recorded that's not out yet, but we we were kind of saying how it's like if if you're a state like Florida that kind of prides yourself on laissez-faire like capitalist and like deregulated industry and things like that, why would you like what would possess you to do something like this other than some sort of like racist vindication? You know what I mean? That's literally it's, what it is. He's doing this because it's going to help him presidentially you're, if he runs. You're, 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 yeah, you're, you can, it's, it's for political gain. It's not for any like practical gain. All you're yeah. doing is furthering discrimination in order to get a higher percentage of conservative voters up to, to appeal to you, basically. Speaking of presidential yeah, what, runs. What about, what about other elections that are going on and people? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, so there's two really important ones as far as global politics goes, and that's going to be Turkey and Thailand. Uh, Ace, you want to tell us more about them? Yeah, I can, I can get into Turkey. So essentially, there's been this uh, campaign buildup between Erdogan, who we all know, and there are obvious reasons that the Turkish people are dissatisfied with him. Uh, corruption, foreign policy, uh, Syrian migrants coming through like the border. There's there's millions of them in Turkey, and that dissatisfies the Turkish population in a lot of ways. He he has ties to the mafia. He you could say that the earthquake was even and the amount of like death and destruction that was that that it it inflicted was partially his fault because he was um. Uh, he was uh, employing contractors who were like known to cut corners and, and he would do in, in like these eastern parts of Turkey and he would he would do so because he either, you know, his party had a personal relationship with them or because they knew they could get like a cheaper like a construction goods, things, things, things like that. Right. And, you know, you obviously have his foreign policy, you have his crackdown on journalists and free speech on teachers right so there's there's and just the cost of living in turkey has gone up the economy and things like that so you have all these reasons people are against turkey so then you have his opposition candidate which is a guy whose name i'm about to butcher really badly right now uh kilich Daraglu, i want to say is how you just say, say the name I, of the I, party I, I, the coalition uh, yeah his, his party his party is uh the chp which is basically like a more secular uh kamalist party he's trying to return the country to a parliamental democracy which if a couple years ago 
uh, Erdogan kind of concentrated more presidential powers for himself, which a lot of people saw as like a move towards dictatorship. It and was. That's, that's the... It was a move towards dictatorship. Yeah. But I, if the, was... the most important thing is is that the election the election didn't end with anyone getting the majority that they needed. They needed fifty percent plus one. Nobody got that, so it's entering yeah, a runoff. Yeah, so they're they're going to go into a runoff on I believe the twenty eighth. But uh, Kilicidaraglu's like uh, his um his his coalition. Does, it's not just his his party. It's a, it's a coalition of parties. So you have like um the IYI I want to say you call it or the Good Party, which is like a far right party that's in his coalition. You have the HDP, the Kurd- left-wing Kurdish party that's in his coalition. You have a number of other Islamist parties that are within his coalition. So it's 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 basically, in a lot of ways, just a bunch of constituents who may or may not be fed up with Erdogan and want to gain parliamentary seats to get, get him out, essentially. It reminds me a lot of uh, when they got Bibi out for like six weeks there in Israel. Yeah. So that that's and then also in Turkey we have this guy named Orgon who is this uh this this far right party leader who's gained about 5% of the vote and he's kind of we were saying earlier kind of like the libertarians in the US where in which he's um in a, in a way kind of stealing votes from both sides. He himself and his party just has 5% of the total vote. Yeah, so and then as far as um Thailand goes it's also just like how Turkey was like an election that it's like well it's uneventful right now Thailand is the same way even though there was a clear definitive winner Thailand has a history of people going pro-democracy and then coups happening so everyone's kind of being like well I hope a coup doesn't happen and so basically if this government does stay in play they're gonna be very most likely very reform reformative to the country because the country is set up to be run as a military run country. So now dating back to like the 1930s. Yeah. So now if it's yeah. not, it would be like, you know, post Francoist Spain, you know, like it, it's, it's going to change up everything in, in their a, a lot of, a lot of people in the military could be concerned about their positions they they you know nobody likes giving up power is, is what we're trying to get across here mm-hmm. and, and you know myanmar is right the, there as well exactly and myanmar is is currently albeit in a much more violent state in a, in, in like a in a fight against a, a military dictatorship and uh the other thing with thailand to note is uh pita limjaronat the guy that won yeah he's, he's this young millionaire good-looking guy and um his the kind of the whole thing is like he's the, the thing that a lot of media is touting is he is the most progressive candidate uh the most forward-thinking candidate so to speak to win an election in thailand's history and you know a lot of his uh his success in the campaign was spurred by like the youth young people who who came out and voted for him and kind of got behind them anyway um lastly let's get into this as quickly as we can mm-hmm. is the updates with ukraine Yes. Um, and how, so, I, I think we have a new nuclear threat from Russia. Uh, there's always a nuclear threat. I know, but this one is specifically a, a, in response to what's going on. Um, so the the one thing that I've been seeing is, uh, so because Zelensky had a visit to Germany, not 100% sure what he was doing in Germany, but the thing that really sort of stuck out to me was his uh, surprise trip to the UK to talk to Rishi Sunak. 
Um, interestingly enough, uh, the day after he gets there, uh, Rishi Sunak and the Dutch Prime Minister, I think it is, um, announced that they're looking to make a, fo- a coalition to get NATO countries or just allied countries in general to donate spare fighter jets, uh, which is kind of interesting because... Zelensky has been stressing that he needs the he needs the F-16s. Yeah, so the F-16s... And America has been like, hot. no. The, well, um, well, the the U.S. and the Netherlands, I think, are currently working on a framework to get him the F-16s. Yeah, well... Yeah, so, least, it, yeah. so it says... If somebody can do it faster, why not? Said. Yeah, so they're, they're looking to uh, create an international coalition to help procure the F-16 fighter jets. Um, I've also seen pushes from people in Australia to get the uh, 20 or so F-18 Super Hornets that we have sitting in storage that are most likely just going to be cut up um, over to Ukraine. Um, the problem is that we they, they don't really have the facilities to do the training on the F-18s. Uh, I believe that Canada has F-18s as well, and they have Ukrainian-speaking pilots that could do the training theoretically. But at the end of the day, they're old as fuck. Like, they're hand-me-down U.S. Navy jets. So we're also going to apparently need permission from the U.S. to do it, which I'm sure the U.S. won't care. But it's just kind of interesting because the... I, mean, I don't know how much aren't Americans currently actually... training Chinese and North Korean pilots. Is that a thing? It's, it's British, I think. British British were involved in a scandal in this. Let me look oh, this that was, that was years ago. That was years years ago. It was Chinese the point pilot. is, is that these people they have people who can train them to fly planes. Come on, yeah. Like obviously they do, but it's just sort of whether that's actually going to do anything at the end of the day. Um, well, the thing is, the thing is. That they're fighting Russia, and Russia has shown they they don't have to be better trained pilots than NATO. They just have to be better than Russia, which seems <laughs> like it's not difficult. Yeah, so it just it just depends on whether that actually happens or not. I feel like they will get F-16s eventually. Whether it's in time or not, that's a different story. Well, we just but... gave them the fucking Abrams, and they're not even rolled out yet. Mm. It's, it's like why not? Yeah, if no, that that's sort of my my opinion on it as well. Is like, why not? Who cares? Yeah. Like, why at the not? end of the day, it's Ukraine trying to defend itself, and you want to know why not? Why? Because Iran has Tomcats, F fourteens. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. this is Iran we had just sent Russia. them those before mm. the revolution. Yes. That's our issue. Our issue is is that there's an active separatist force fighting for the Ukrainian army. That separatist force is the biggest threat to Ukraine, not Russia. So, yeah. If that, um, if you look at Iran, it's like they still those pilots. They just started working for the Iranian military at the end so, of the day. So, um, is is your concern, or you think that the concern of the U.S. government is that? in a post-war Ukraine that because these separatists would possibly be involved in the government as part of a peace deal or whatever, they could get their hands on this technology or my misunderstanding? Well, this? so my I'm comparing it to the Iranian revolution. The Iranian revolution was not technically a popular uprising. 
you know, Zelensky isn't the guy that would be really easy to coup for starters. Um, but I would say that this is probably the main concern people have because it would create an active threat next to NATO because Russia isn't an active threat. Technically it's an active threat for people who aren't in NATO, but if Ukraine became an active threat, it could be something that's more problematic on NATO's borders. And so I think other countries, but Poland is the main one who's got the border there and they're like, let's kill them. Let's kill all the Russians. Since this whole thing is kicked off, Poland wants to, they want to fight the Russians really bad. Uh, okay, so that is headlines for this week. Uh, stay around and listen to the interview with Drew. Uh, he He's a very interesting person. And yeah, enjoy the show. We have a weapon more powerful than the British Empire. And that weapon is our refusal to bow to any order but our own. Any institution but our own. My name is Drew. I have been campaigning against the Chinese Communist Party for four and a half years, almost four years now. It all started when I had um, a pro Hong Kong rally at the University of Queensland, and it was the first protest I ever held. And basically, we had like 20 people supporting Hong Kong, supporting Uyghurs. We wanted to close down the Confucius Institute, which is run by the Chinese government at UQ. Can you explain what the Confucius School is? Like, so the Confucius Institute is basically run by um, the Chinese government. It's it's billed as a language and cultural institute, but they're basically run by the Chinese government and they basically go to universities around the world and they say, we will teach Chinese for you for free um, if you let us basically like come in and we'll, we'll cover everything. And all these universities jump at the opportunity because it takes like, you know, it's, it's basically free money for them. But the problem is when they're teaching Chinese language, language they're also um, ensuring that there is no critical coverage of Chinese Communist Party atrocities in Chinese history. Because, you know, as part of language studies, you have to understand the history of the country. You have to understand the culture of a country as well. Um, and so, like, they basically offer a very sanitized view of um, Chinese government atrocities. They were funding four courses at the University of Queensland. And as part of these courses, one of them... Um, so, you know, they, they're directly funded by the Chinese go government. And one of these courses that the Confucius Institute was funding like as a proxy for the Chinese government was basically um, trying to ask students should, which um, should Hong Kong protesters be considered terrorists? And they, when they introduced the crackdown on the Uyghurs as a subject, they were saying, Oh, well, Uyghurs are overrepresented in terrorist statistics. And can you imagine like a course at like a top Australian university, UQ builds itself as like one of the top 50 unis in the world, one of Australia's best five universities. Can you imagine a course, you know, at a top university saying, oh, well, African-Americans are overrepresented, blah, 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 like with racial crime statistics and stuff. Like, of course not, because this is racism. This is part of like an agenda. And no one would ever accept that. But for some reason, the University of Queensland was allowing Chinese government to basically promote racial crime statistics about Uyghurs to try and like justify its genocidal crackdown on the Uyghurs. And so this was happening at the, at the University of Queensland through the Confucian suit, and we we're protesting against it. And the vice chancellor of the university, Peter Hoy, the president of the university, he um, he was getting secret $200,000 bonuses every year for deepening ties with China. That was one of his KPIs. And um, he was on the board of Hanban, which was the Chinese government organization that ran Confucian Institutes worldwide. And he was, um, he was given an award by the Chinese government in 2015, Most Outstanding Individual of the Year Award for promoting Confucian Institutes worldwide. So you had like literally the president of UQ being awarded medals by the Chinese government for promoting their propaganda. 
and the Chinese government institute on campus was promoting propaganda to students. We tried to hold a small protest and suddenly they organized 300, 400 people. Like the Chinese consulate in Brisbane basically organized 300, 400 people to try assault us and, and surround us. And this all went viral on social media and in China. And um, they were saying it was a terrorist rally because we were supporting Uyghurs. And they even tried to get the Queensland police to shut us down by saying this is a pro-terrorist rally because they were trying to say all Uyghurs are terrorists. So that's how it all started for me. I was 20 years old and that was the first protest I ever led. And I go home that day and I've got like thousands of abusive messages and comments and stuff from pro-China nationalists basically saying we're going to kill you. We're going to kill your family. We're going to hunt you down. This is what I, this was my first ever protest. And obviously experiencing that, I'm like, holy shit, something's cooked here when it comes to Chinese Communist Party influence that they can try and do this to someone simply for holding a protest in their own country. Um, and so I was like, okay, I'm going to just like double down. I'm going to keep protesting. That was very hard because my family was super against me protesting. A lot of my friends were as well. It was very scary because overnight, just literally average bloke, regular student to Chinese government was putting out basically newspaper articles saying this guy's a separatist and separatism's death penalty offense in China. So that's, that was my introduction and it was very hard. My family were really against it. Friends were really against it. I lost so many friends, um, just turned my life upside down, but I felt so strongly that I had to keep going because I was like just shocked by the response. And also in the aftermath of that protest, I wasn't even the one that had the worst crack. I wasn't even the one that faced the worst intimidation. So, um, there were Chinese students who attended the protests and they all had their family members threatened by the Chinese Communist Party inside China within days of attending the protests. So like their photos were all spread online and then Chinese secret police basically visited their families and threatened their jobs and threatened um, threatened imprisonment and all that sort of stuff if their, if their children kept on protesting in, in Australia. And so all the Chinese students were, who like attended our protests were terrified and they were like, we can't keep going. So... They, but they wanted us to keep going because they didn't want the entire movement to collapse overnight. And um, I'd never been in the media before, never had any experience as an activist or anything, but suddenly I was doing all these media interviews and it was really scary the first couple of times I was doing them. And um, I guess the initial motiv motivation was like, you know, just keep trying to speak out for our friends who can't because they've literally got family members in China um, who are being threatened. This happened to like three or four people who came to that protest. And so, yeah, but the, how did the university respond? The universities, um, the university basically from that moment started an investigation into me and, um, their, their priority from that moment basically was to go after me as the protest organizer, not the guys who like assaulted us. I was, um, I was punched in the back of the head while my back was turned by a guy in a skeleton teeth mask. He was like assaulting multiple people and yeah, my back was turned and he assaulted me in the back of the, he punched me in the back of the head while my back's turned, trying to knock me out. See. I always was really interested in politics when I was growing up, but, and I always kind of like wanted to be involved in like, you know, public life, but I was always thinking like, that's when I'm much older, when I'm like in my fifties, sixties, after I've already established myself, blah, blah, blah. I never was like really prepared so young to be kind of thrust into the kind of um, public square. And when you start, when you're in the public square a bit, like, man, you see people invent conspiracy theories about yourself. And when you see that happen, like in real time, it's amazing because then you get an insight into how the minds of conspiracy theorists work. People always say like, oh, Drew's a shell of US imperialism. When I was growing up, like I was growing up in the, like reading Mad Magazine, reading all the criticism of like George Bush. I fucking hated Bush and Cheney. I hated Guantanamo Bay. I hated the war on terror. Like I was always very critical of this stuff. And I guess 
what drew me to the China thing was you have so many people on the left always criticizing the US, but for some reason there's a big blind spot on China. And I just felt like you can't have that blind spot. Somebody has to speak about this. And, and yeah, like basically back to that subject of like how conspiracy theory, just giving you an example of how conspiracy theory forms, like, you know, the LaRussians? No, I've never heard of that. Oh, you're blessed. Like, yeah, I mean, that's why. Oh my God. Like, well, LaRouche is like a weird cult. Like it was basically founded by Lyndon LaRouche in the US. And um, it's kind of like the original tankies, like the original sort of red brown fascists. For example, if you saw people, um, you know how like there were people that went to the AOC town halls and they just started yelling at AOC going like, you're supporting World War Three, blah, 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 and all that shit. And it went really viral. That was LaRouchians. Like, and people like, um, people like Haz, for example, he's quite LaRouchian. Like they're all kind of part of that network, you know, like Jackson. The Hickles. MAGA communist people. Yeah, the MAGA communist people. Like the, really sorry, 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 Nazbols. Yeah, basically Nazbol. It, it's basically a Nazbol movement. And so there's like, there's this like citizens electoral. There's basically a LaRouche party in the, in Australia, and it is such a weird thing. So like, the, over the past three years, for example, they took in about six million dollars in revenue. Yet they only got thirty thousand votes at the election. So it's almost just running, like they've got a political arm, but they just kind of run that as a front to get tax-free donations and all that sort of stuff. And they basically have like a boiler room type operation where they're calling up old grannies and like they're just getting, they're just targeting old people for donations and stuff like that. It's it's really quite a sick thing. Um, and they've got like their own sort of propaganda services. They've published someone like, they've pro published some really crooked shit over the years. Like, for example, saying Indigenous Australians are cannibals. They, they, um, they published a guy who was close to the Kremlin, who was basically saying we have to fight the West because they've got a satanic homosexual agenda against us. Like, it's a really Nazbol thing. But Sounds it's like a Russian talking point. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's really interesting, though, because in public, in Australia, they try and present, like, a kind of, like, more normal face. So, like... What's the party called? Um, so, they used to be called the Citizen Electoral Council, but they changed their name to the Citizens Party. Um, you can bring oh, up their Wikipedia. It's really interesting. Yeah, oh, you know them? Oh, my God. So yeah, many man. people voted for them. Yeah, bro. So they are fucking full on LaRouche tankies. They they openly advertise the fact that they're part of the LaRouche cult movement worldwide. And so they publish all this crooked, cooked propaganda all the time. Um, they've been basically at the very forefront of attacking anyone who's critical of the Chinese Communist Party in Australia. So they like harassed Vicky Shu, the Chinese um, Australian dissident writer who basically produced a report on Uyghur slave labor. They harassed her so like brutally. They basically stalked her to an extent like they, they, for, for some reason, Robbie Barwick, the leader, like confronted her at an airport terminal. He reckoned just because he randomly found out she was on the same plane and he just like tried to like film an interrogation or whatever. And then he found out that she was, um, and then she basically, she ended up going underground for like two years. She was forced underground because, forced into science because the Chinese Communist Party were running a massive campaign against her, basically saying, yeah, this is citizens party shit. And they, the Chinese government was running a massive campaign against her. Basically, they... They basically, one of her best friends went back to China and they basically got her best friend and basically said, hand over everything you have on her. And so they somehow like just, you know, they, they just got like access to years worth of chat logs and all this sort of stuff. And so, so through that, they started running like these really sickening, weird videos, like where they'd use like AI voice recording, but it would be like, Vic, and it was just, and it was like the levels of like misogyny and racism in this stuff was so sickening. It was going like, Vicky Shu has betrayed the Han nation by having sex with black men. Like, I'm not even kidding. That was the level of the propaganda they were running against Vicky Shu. And Robbie Barwick was like the face of the Australian, like, propaganda campaign against Vicky Shu. Because, like, 
she was forced underground for like two years because of this horrible campaign against her. And her first public event back, it was like a panel discussion. And he rocks up and he just start he tries to get up and in this like weird trench coat and he's just going like, Vicky, what do you have to say about for yourself about all the Uyghurs you've forced out of legitimate jobs due to your lies for the CIA and shit like that? Because in their narrative, in their fucking insane narrative, um, the people that expose the Uyghur forced labor and then therefore like force like Nike to clean up its supply chains and stuff like that. In their fucking insane narrative, they were stealing, they were taking away jobs from Uyghurs that the Uyghurs really enjoyed and loved, like the, fa the slave labor jobs. So, so this is just like background into Citizens Party, right? And they were trying to do... Um, I really hate how this is formatted because it looks like you should be able to click on this, you know? Like you should be able really to click on that after the USR. It's like I will, bullet points on the side, but you can't click on them. Bro, let, just while, looking while this, it's so while funny. Stream, while we're on the stream, let me... Um, I'll send it in the private chat because I've got like... I started doing research into them. I started looking at some of the stuff they published, and you can bring up some of the stuff they published just to like kind of explain to people how. Well, cool this is interesting because I see I it's basically everything that we were talking about beforehand. How I was talking about like uh like Al Qaeda stuff and things like that. Oh my god! Like talking man, about Afghanistan insane. and like the resistance against the Soviets and stuff. Like the most like um generic broadline way you could look at these things, and you would think that like the Young Turks are on here even. <laughs> I literally just saw that. Why are they there? Because well, this is part of the narrative, right? Like this is this is how see, they, they have Wahhabite education. <laughs> yeah, Wahhabite yeah, so... education and jihadist training. I'm just it's really Ace, cool. Ace can go ahead on that one if you want. <laughs> it's really cool. Like obviously they're they're paying people to produce propaganda against the Uyghurs, and there were some sort of nationalist currents within the Uyghur. Obviously, you know. If you've got an entire people that are like 12, 15 million people, you're going to have some political currents, of, of course, you know, and it, it's like how they're going. The Ukrainians are all neo-Nazi because there's like one small party with like, that doesn't even get 2% of the vote. It's, it's but, a thousand people in yeah. a militia that was displaced because Russia sent neo-Nazis into Donbass. Um, just while we're bringing this up, I wanted to go back to the Confucius Institute because I yeah. know that it ha it had there's like an overarching umbrella of like foreign interference sort of things, and the Confucius Institute is one of the big ones. I Look, it, there there is basically the United. So basically, the Chinese Communist Party, its foreign influence efforts are directed through the United Front, and on a domestic yeah, level, that's through the United Front. And Xi Jinping has called it like the magic weapon of the party to like. Mm um yeah just basically this to, article um... is amazing <laughs> oh wait which one? Oh yeah did oh my god it's just insane man like the level the stuff you can if you just go through their archives it is fucking insane some of the stuff they've produced like they are incredible like these people and um it's really interesting because the global larouche movement is really pro-china despite the fact that larouche had quotes where he said like the chinese like his quotes were just disgusting when you looked at how he talked about I've actually got the research. I'm going to pull up, like, I have a research file on them because I'm going to eventually do a video on them. Um, yeah, and, oh, this was another one that they found. So I'm just going back through my file. They basically were saying that, um, <laughs> what was it? They were saying, like, any move to, to attempt to reduce carbon emissions is global genocide, like an attempt to kill 4 billion people or whatever. Um, LaRouche's actual quote on the Chinese, this is his quote. He said, Chinese are a paranoid people sharing with lower forms of animal life, a fundamental distinction from an actually human personalities. And he said, tribal people such as those in the Amazon have a likeness to a lower beast. And he said, Native Americans, was it correct 
for the American branch of European humanist culture to absorb the territories occupied by a miserable, relatively bestial culture of Indigenous Americans. Absolutely. His quote on homosexuals, those who lynch homosexuals will be remembered as the only force which acted to save the human species from extinction. Like, it is full-on Nazbol, but if you look at, like, their communications now, especially in Australia, they're trying to put on, like, a more kind of... um, They're kind of putting on, like, a more moderate face. So, holy shit, like, Friendly Geordies the other day quoted from an article written by Robbie Barwick, their leader. And I don't think he understands like what Robbie Barwick is part of or what Robbie Barwick represents. Jordan Jordan has a big blind spot for China and the left. He does not criticize them. And this is my biggest criticism of him, mostly because he's not actually a journalist. He's doing journalism. Look, look, I'll just say on Jordan, like I really love the work he did exposing John Barillaro and some of the corruption in Australia. Like that was genuinely amazing work. And, um, and he's done a lot of really, really good things. But yeah, just when it comes to China, like he once said that the Uyghurs deserve it. And he was kind of like just, he was kind of like just quoting like just, oh, Chomsky. Um, you know, the, like the tank. He's thing, a big like, fan of Chomsky. Um, thing, it's really I think it was, it was on his podcast, was it not? I yeah, think yeah, I remember I, the exact thing I you're talking you about. Maybe. Um, um, I, th- I do, I do want to qualify this with the fact that he did say after he said that that he actually doesn't know anything and it was kind of a joke like he did qualify it with that but it doesn't excuse the fact that you're still like saying that like yes okay you're joking but it's still and i'm kind of being hypocritical here but like it's uh, interesting and he's also hung out a lot with like simeon boykov aussie cossack and like Mm. i know he gets it's funny and everything but like simeon boykov like literally simeon boykov was like fucking in the donbass Probably as a foreign fighter. He met with Gherkin in fucking, in the Donbass. Like, huh. and Gherkin's been convicted of MH17 bombing, killed 30, like 38 Australians. And like, I don't think it's funny that Friendly Geordies hangs out with him, you know? And like- I yeah. didn't know that. That's very concerning because this guy is the guy who spread the biolab bullshit in Australia. He's the he one really who posted- like, man, It really was him. It was like, him. I, I used that video to deconstruct that whole- conspiracy theory i know so much about fucking biolabs now i hate it <laughs> like i don't know like i think unfortunately friendly geordies has some pretty tanky sympathies it's a shame because i actually really like like the work he's done on domestic politics and like it's like he just did a video also- with boy boy <laughs> and like the one guy in there is like he has like Ch- uh fidel castro's militia's flag and like the background of his room and stuff like those guys are like such hardcore tankies Wait, which guy? Which guy? Boy boy. Uh, I did a thing. I did a thing and and his... Oh, boy boy. The other guy, though. Not just yeah, it's the, the other, other guy. guys. Like, super. They like they went to, like, North Korea and did a dim- yeah, oh, documentary on how Can North Korea... Can you tell me more about Boy Boy? Cool. Can you tell me more about Boy Boy? Because um, I actually, like, only discovered them the other day. Like, I'm such it's, a boomer. I wasn't oh, really... I mean, YouTube. it's the one guy, really. It's the Alexa guy. I Like, he's, yeah. very, he's very pro-communist, he's very tanky and stuff. Does he actually have an Assad... Does he actually have an Assad flag? No, no, his... no, no, no. A, no, no. a Castro, Castro war flag. Castro. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, Did I say Assad? Oh, no, yeah, no, yeah. You said, no, no. you might have said Assad and then corrected Okay, yourself. I meant Castro. Yeah, he's got like the yeah. whatever, the FNLN. Yeah, yeah. I think it's whatever. a 26 Julio flag, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, that's the one. Look, I've never really read that much into Cuba, so I... My impression on the face of it is it's that's not as bad as like defending Assad. I don't know. No, yeah. but it's it's more what he says and how he goes about it. His video on Ukraine was appalling. Oh, oh, yeah, it was God. appalling, God. and it just shows you exactly where their alliances are or it's where they get their information want, from. These people have a lot of traction, right? And this is part of my one of my motivations for wanting to get more into YouTube because like 
Mm. There's a there are a lot of lot of tankies on there that get a lot of traction. Dumbbells the worst, but <laughs> going going all the way back to the Citizens Electoral Council thing. So like yeah, they're starting to get a bit of traction. Like Robbie Barwick um, was actually like he one of his articles appeared in the recent Friendly Geordies video. I don't think there's necessarily any sign that Friendly Geordies knows about what Robbie Barwick is actually part of. But like also Robbie Barwick met with some Labor politicians as well because um, he's. One of the things is like alongside all their crazy Nas bullshit, they just do like kind of relatively normal campaigns to try and advocate like a postal bank in Australia, which is like obviously pretty normal and moderate. And, you know, I support it. I'm sure I, I, why not a postal bank? Like that's fine. This but, guy um, looks sick. Yeah, no, he's, <laughs> he a, he's a real sicko. <laughs> he's, no, he's a real sicko. Like this guy's pretty, like he started stalking me kind of back in 2019 when I was only 20 years old. He's basically been attacking me for four years. And, um, just, just going back to like why I brought them up in the first place, like when you see conspiracy theories circulate about yourself for the first time. So I, I said in that news article or whatever saying like, oh, you know, I did like the history of genocide course at UQ just because it was easier to say that rather than explain like basically I'm obsessed with China because I'm autistic. Like, like I, I, that was, I basically said that to, um, to the journalists and I'm like, like, I'm not being fully diagnosed, but I definitely am pretty neurodivergent. Anyway, like... Basically, um, Robbie Barwick, he was trying to do like an expose on me and I'll, I'll show you the expose. It's so fucking bizarre. Like I was laughing so much when I read it because I was like, holy shit, like this is so stupid. Um, the bloody hand of Tony Blair. Oh my God, man. I went to the US in like December 2020, no 2019, sorry. Um, like with my lawyer, Mark Tarrant, because we were trying to sue the Chinese consul general in Brisbane, Zhu Zhe because of how I was just basically trying to get like a restraining order against him because he put out the, um, the thing saying like sort of endorsing violence against me. And we went over there to basically try and meet with media outlets. And we didn't really get to meet with many new media outlets, but I did get to meet with some like activists and stuff like that. Like I, I, I met with like James Palmer at foreign policy and stuff, but I got to meet with a lot of activists and they had like um, a protest march and I just went along to the protest march. I don't even think I really knew what I was holding, but I just thought like I'm supporting the Uyghurs, but um, I went along to the protest march and yeah, like Robbie Barwick, anyway, anyway, Robbie Barwick goes to, um, he finds out Kirill Shields is the guy who taught the course, um, history of genocide. They start and with like, you and then they get all the way down here. They're talking about Kissinger. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> they, was, like, that's a quite the pipeline. No, right. Well, let me explain the pipeline to you. Right. So Kirill Shields, he's part of the responsibility to protect center at UQ. Basically UQ has this small center where like there are a couple of political science at like academics who basically argue for the responsibility to protect doctrine that basically says if a government's committing genocide like there should be foreign intervention and like i guess it was kind of like that was the kind of idea behind like the nato intervention in bosnia and stuff like that and um and basically what they try and argue in this crazy article is well kirill shields is part of the responsibility to protect center and tony blair was the guy who brought responsibility to, to protect doctrine to the world with the iraq war therefore Drew has been indoctrinated by the UQ Responsibility to Protect Center, and therefore Drew is indirectly indoctrinated by Tony Blair. And like, to be honest, man, I went to like five lectures in that course. I barely paid attention. Like, I was not really influenced by that course. Bro, oh, they God, have Serbiencia, like massacre style. I think I'm not sure. I'm not going to read it in depth, but I think this right here, this is like, this is like, if it's a, it's at very least a dog whistle to this genocide mm. not happening. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. Oh, no, if you went through the Citizens Electoral Council archive, you'd 100% find something saying, like, there was no genocide. In yeah, so... Actually, we'll look that up right now. I'm word, this <laughs> word being thrown out. Let me actually try to see if I can search up Srebrenica on their website. Serbia. Nothing oh, in Serbia? Also, down here we have this. 
You in your face, WMDH. Deliberate lie. You can't say that. You can't say that. That's like, there's no evidence. We need a document that says they were lying deliberately to be able to say that. We say it's more than likely they lied. Look about nukes. Obviously, the Iraq war was such a disaster. It was never about nukes. It was always about sarin. Chemical weapons. It was always about sarin. I just don't understand, though, like, why there are so many people on the left who are like, like, how dare you overthrow Saddam? Like, like at the end of the day, Saddam was like a documented killer. Like, he yeah, was, we we like, just did, we have a great video we just did on it where we, well, the first one we just we put out and it's um, Hitchens and we're we're critiquing Hitchens saying is he right oh. about the Iraq War? So it's an anti-Hitchens video, and then yesterday we just put out one where it's anti-Hassan. So we're oh, hitting yeah. it on both sides look, look, and arguing look, at it from both sides. Look, I'm I'm certainly anti-Iraq War because. I think it was ultimately exactly what Al-Qaeda wanted, right? For us to actually like... No, you're exactly it. right. That's actually what they did. But, we have but, documents but, of Al-Qaeda like in 2002 yeah. saying, hey, let's get the Americans to invade Iraq. Yeah. But at, at the same time though, like you, my thinking is like, you can say the Iraq war was a horrible, like horrible mistake while not necessarily shilling for Saddam Hussein. Like, I don't know why people have to make that jump to actually saying like, oh, Saddam, Saddam Hussein It's was It's because these people aren't smart. These yeah. people are propagandized. They're stooges. It's the oh. same as the, the Russian stooges who shill for Putin but say that they're anti-war. True. when you say that this, like the Citizens Party, they, they kind of, they've normalized, they've toned down their campaigning, like, could you give us an example of that? How, how do you mean they've, because based on what you've told us, they sound fucking insane. Like, how do they tone down their shit for the average person? Um... Well, like, look, if you go onto their YouTube, like, their earliest videos back in 2009, like, were literally just Robbie Barwick in front of, like, a black screen, and he looks like fucking, you know, you know, the um the guys you have as the background on this, like, the guys with the black mask in front of the wall, like, the, those are, it was basically, like, Robbie Barwick in, like, a hostage studio going, like, like, and he's just going, our, like, our guy, this is actually like, a modified picture of them, though. Yeah, right, right. Um, so, like, they're, they're actually, they're actually in birthday hats. Right, right, yeah, see, it was basically Robbie Barwick like filmed like it just looked so bad like his studio set up back then like it just looked like it looked like he was a hostage and he was just yelling like like terrible fake blah, blah blah and then like but now all they do on twitter and stuff and like also in the past like they were literally saying like the most insane conspiracy theories ever they at one point they were saying like the port arthur massacre which was the worst gun shooting in australia history they were saying that was israel and stuff like that also um they basically they I started off heard that one yeah, it's real. They, they say that they say that um, Martin Bryant was the full guy, and they say it was Mossad or whatever. It's like just part of. Like, See, I've thing. I've heard the full guy thing, but I'd never heard about the Mossad thing. What is my favorite right here? website now? Oh my god, man! They've got a Chinese section on the website now. Click that. <laughs> wow, beautiful, oh beautiful. my god! I'm translating this stuff for them. Damn. Oh my god! Yeah, that's hilarious. That's awesome. Anyway, that's, like it's that's incredible. Epic. Also, when they first started in the, like, so they first started in Queensland, but they moved down to Melbourne and they made their headquarters in the largest Jewish sub suburb in Melbourne. And they literally started off in like the early 2000s, just stalking Jewish people all across Melbourne and stuff. It was like really fucking hardcore, Nazbol, anti-Semitic, insane shit. And I think they've toned that all down at the moment. They still talk crazy shit about like, they still say like Netanyahu's going to like drink the blood of babies or whatever. But like, I think relatively they've kind of turned it down from the point where, like, 
I think in the early 2000s, they were literally just like stalking and targeting Jewish community leaders in Melbourne, which was like, it was, it was really fucking insane and like almost like domestic terror threat level of like stalking. And, um, and then like, I think the, I don't think like based on their current communications, it seems all they're doing these days is they're trying to present a respectable face. Like they're trying to say like, oh, we're just people who don't want a war with China. We're just trying to make Australia's uh, we're just trying to make Australian foreign policy more realistic, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's blah, like blah. the code pink idiots and yeah, no, no, uh, they're basically the trying rage against the war. Yeah, yeah, no. These days they're basically trying the code pink stuff and they're not really going up, going after the whole anti-Semitic insane shit that they started off with. Well, it's, it's insane because just code pink, code pink, she's been on fucking CGTN multiple times. Oh my God. Just man. straight up shilling Chinese talking points. <laughs> Bro, so when when um, Xi Jinping had his third term recently, when when he was like reconfirmed, for, re-elected, you know, um, it was like literally like the top Chinese. I think it was even the like the People's Daily. They literally were just in. They were just including basically um, messages from political parties all around the world congratulating Xi Jinping, and they included a message from the fucking Citizens Electoral Council of Australia, like the Citizen Party. It was crazy. This guy looks like a televangelist. Yeah, no, but that's actually what it is, man. It's a religious cult. It basically is. So if you go to his LinkedIn, he says that he's been a me- like he says that he joined the CEC like in 1992, and he's only worked within the Citizen Party since then. Never been outside the organization. That, like religious, uh-huh. channel, like camera work. You know, he's got that lighting and camera work. <laughs> it's even. It's not just. The, it's not just the way he's dressed. It's like the lighting of the camera work. So what's the so what's the difference between the, those two pictures? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. Like, if you're gonna say crazy shit on the air, you gotta have the right lighting for it. It's just, what the fuck? It's top down behind you. Bad clothes. Yeah, <laughs> religion. Honestly, no, it's like full on cult though. Like, like they're basically getting people to don- to don- to donate their life savings and stuff. It's like really bad. I've actually, I actually know someone personally who got somehow sucked into the Citizens Electoral Party, that sucked into the Citizens Party cult, and he started giving so much money to them, and like, man, he's like, he almost lost his house, and like, his wife left him. Like, it just fucked up, man. It's a really bad. I talk about this a lot, but America has a serious problem with political cults that's not addressed at all, yeah. and a lot yeah. of it's like institutionalized through like the homeschooling network. It's really bad, man. It's really bad. The LaRouche cult, like, you should look them up. They're they're really like well known cult in America. Yeah, oh my god. So so here's um, the call the People's Daily, um the People's Daily congrat saying the National People's Party of Australia has congratulated us on Xi Jinping. Oh my god, Robbie Barwick uh, tweet. The Australian Citizen Party is proud to be the only Australian party to congratulate Xi Jinping on his third term as president of our biggest trading partner, the People's Republic of China. Fuck these people, man. It's incredible. Insane. Insane. And it's like it's not even it's not even just the minor irrelevant parties. Like um I think I saw the li- the Lib Dems commenting about this as well then you've got the libertarians in america saying that taiwan isn't a country one fuck you two shut the fuck up and now now you've got labor in australia probably uk as well let's be real labor is pretty much the same in both countries um the state premiers which is the most concerning part right the state premiers which i think has only been uh anastasia palaget mark mcgowan and daniel andrews at this point um, multiple trips from Daniel Andrews. First trip was after he promised 
uh, Melbourne's infrastructure to the Belt and Road Initiative, which was torpedoed by the National Labor Party, which doesn't make any sense. That's the that's the guy. Um, that guy is one of the leaders of the Liberal Democrats in Australia, and um, like the Libertarian guys. And his mm. son ran as a candidate, and his son had like basically studied in China as part of a Confucius Institute thing. Competent so, communist. Well, that's that's an interesting yeah. choice of words. That's an that's an insane sentence that I've just. It is an insane today. sentence, and like for not and like for me, and I'm reading it because this is supposed to be somebody who's towing party lines. Like he's look at his other two. I'm, I'm like he, more. This is appealing to a liberal agenda audience. Oh, he's not. No, no, no. I know that. I'm saying politics, though. If you were actually getting involved, with, where you're going to be in a position of power in politics, you have to have some sort of liberal agenda. Yeah, yeah. You can't um, go this far out. Um, there's one psycho one he made about Zelensky saying Zelensky is modern history's least admirable Jew. Like it was so fucking schizo. <laughs> he retweeted that, which goes into what we were saying before about Just their obsession AI with art of Oh yeah. my god, so cringe. so crazy, so man. Cringe. So crazy. Anyway, like, how fucking insane is that tweet, man? You would have been a meth to write that. What the fuck? <laughs> If I were not a Celt, what the fuck, man? It's insane. Oh my god! And these are the Liberal Democrats in Australia. It's fucking mental. So it's, it's, it's exactly no, no, no. Okay, okay. I want, I want to qualify who's that, this. Who's the who's the least admirable ad, admirable Jew that's in ancient history? Ancient history. If, it, if this is if Jesus, a bad one in modern. History, <laughs> which one does he have a problem with? Like, you know, let's say around the time of like 1930-ish, which Jew do you think he has a problem with then? Least anti-Semitic libertarian. 1930-ish? You see, if we start talking about Jews we have problems with in the 1930s, that uh, at least is some strange, you know. <laughs> oh, he'd probably, you, know you know what he would say? He'd probably say like Lenin. Is this like a thing? He was Jewish? Yeah, yeah, they're all Jews. They were all Ashkenazi Jews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the communists from um That was just like a dog whistle point for when people wanted to shit on the Bolsheviks, like say like, oh, they were all Jews. I was just saying, um, that's the origin of like the anti-Semitic Judeo-Bolshevik myth that like animated Hitler. But yeah, so Labour is uh toying with um with China. Uh we've been know known about this for a while. Um Daniel Andrews tried to sign off um our infrastructure in victoria to the belt and road initiative which was torpedoed by the national labor party maybe in 2021 can't exactly remember mm. um he was not happy about that china was very unhappy about that um anastasia palajay of queensland is gone to china on a secret trip mark not mcgowan I think she's doing it later this year, but yeah. It's oh, okay. It was, it was planned. Okay. So that that's, sorry. Daniel Andrews had the secret trip. Anastasia yeah, Palaszczuk is the Queensland premier and she's got a planned trip to China and Mark McGowan, oh, the premier God. of Western Australia, all labor. Major girl went boss. to, went to China to, uh, I don't know what, because he's a state premier. Why the fuck? Are the state yeah. premiers in Australia meeting with China? It doesn't yeah, make any sense. Insane. And why is it condoned by Anthony Albanese while he's on the other hand doing all this orcas shit against China? It doesn't I make know. any sense. What what's the game here? Well, I can't figure it out. Well, I think I think they're... there it is. 
You know that's what? the original I... picture from Daniel oh, Andrews when he took the trip after he signed away our infrastructure to um, the Belt and Road. Or sorry, sorry, because the the socialist alternative will get very angry with me. It's um, a promise, is what he said. Yeah, yeah. and the, I think as well as part of that, um, look, they they were making trains in China, and um, it was basically proven that there was there was strong evidence that Uyghur slave labor was involved in the construction of the trains, and like. Dan Andrew just said, like, go ahead with it anyway. We just need them done on time. So this guy is so immoral. And um, you know what? I, you know, you're asking why is it that Albanese is doing AUKUS and yet the premiers are conducting their own foreign policy? You know what? Maybe that's part of the design. Maybe maybe Albanese is thinking we can get less, we will have less heat from China if we've got people like Mark McGowan still going there, basically shilling while I do AUKUS. Because I think Albanese knows that the national level, he can't get away with this stuff anymore. And so they've been pretty good on China so far. Albanese and Wong, I was still upset when they met Xi Jinping because I think he should be like isolated as a pariah. But I know, unfortunately, no one... I'm, I'm going to disagree because I feel like Penny Wong is trying her hardest to recover trade deals for money Maybe. while ignoring everything that China is doing. Ignoring the oh. fact that they lied about COVID and let it get out. Lied about oh. the fact that... Um, that well not even not even lied she just doesn't bring up the fact that they're committing genocide she doesn't bring up any of this stuff and is so and it's the same problem with new zealand right new zealand has this same problem except it's worse because they've actually allowed them to test military applications in new zealand so this is this is like a massive thing here and jacinda ardern thank fuck she's gone because she was one of their biggest like one of the biggest china lovers in yeah, our area right john's she laughing because i fucking hate her <laughs> um but it's like it's, it's just and it's it's not so much sorry it's it's not so much that penny wong i i can't figure out whether she's doing it out of malice or out of um obsession with her record and i feel like it's obsession with her record look my impression of my impression of Penny Wong is that she just basically follows the DFAT mandarins to a T. And mm. the DFAT mandarins, they understand that you've got to have a kind of... You've got to change the China relationship, but they're still fundamentally in the model. I mean, all these people that are leading DFAT are still fundamentally in the model that they brought up. They were brought up... They were brought up during the time of Halicon relations with China, trade, trade, trade. And I think a lot of like the top bureaucrats at, at, at DFAT are st- still have that as their mindset. And it's it's very hard because I think Penny Wong follows their advice very closely. And like, you're right. She, she, I've been really disappointed with her failure to call it a genocide in, in um, East Turkestan, the Uyghur genocide. She's basically said nothing about Tibet. Um, she's basically said nothing about the Uyghurs. I mean, it's just like literally one, like they will say, oh, well, we brought it up at our meetings, but they just basically will have like one sentence on it in their meetings with the CCP officials. And like, that's not good enough, you know, like, like, that's if you're doing just one sentence it's just perfunctory it's just like it's just doing it so you can say that you did it and like they're not really actually advocating for Uyghurs to bed into Hong Kongers or human rights in China they're really actually ignoring that and so on that on that level I'm really disappointed um I have been actually pretty happy though with the AUKUS thing because like Keating put a lot of pressure on them Keating was trying very hard to split the party on AUKUS and it's really good that Albanese and Penny Wong didn't fall for that so I'm happy on that. I'm I'm happy on those grounds. Like I think, I think AUKUS long term is the best strategy for Australia because 
I just think on moral grounds, we should try and deter China from invading Taiwan. Like, man, it's 24 million people who live with democracy. We don't, China has actually, like, there was a motion carried at the recent Chinese People's Consultative Conference or whatever, one of these top CCP bodies. And the motion was basically like saying we should sort we should draw up kill lists for Taiwan independence activists post invasion, like that's that's what that's what the Chinese Communist Party is talking about. Like, if you wanna if you want a preview of what they're gonna do to Taiwan if they invade, look at Tibet, look at Xinjiang, look yeah, at East Turkestan, yeah, look, exactly. And you can even look to what Russia did in the occupied areas with like basically, like the murder, the torture of anyone who was in an official position. Like it, it would basically be, uh, it would be like the Katyn massacre, but on a far greater scale. It would be brutal, and and so you've got Bob Carr and Keating and stuff going like, well, Taiwan's just a rock in the sea. It's not Australia's in- interest. But like, holy shit, Keating's Keating's language about Taiwan has actually been genocidal at times. I'm pretty sure at one point he basically dismissed Taiwan as a rock in the sea, as though it, it doesn't have 24 million people on it. Wasn't it? Wasn't I was going to say like, with America months? though. If we look at America, yeah. they're not fucking around with China that much anymore. Like now it's all about Taiwan and it's um, who's in Taiwan, not who's going to China, you know, and like the admin right now, none of them are like talking to Xi Jinping. None of them have showed up and like, like, you know, shared the stage with them at all. Well, that's good. I don't want anyone to stay. I don't yeah. want anyone. I, so I'm just saying America is definitely shift. It's, it's funny that America doesn't talk about because uh, Mike Pompeo did he he used uh he used xinjiang as like an anti-china talking point um i should say east turkestan we should give priority to the people yeah, who aren't shouldn't say east turkestan, um yeah. so mike Pompeo did it used it for that type of rhetoric and a few type of people have recognized it in the u.s government but primarily the focus is taiwan instead and they're they're using yeah. taiwan as more of the anti-china uh, point and i think part of yeah. that is because china is forcing the conversation to go there because when ukraine happened all the all the reporters here were talking about how taiwan is going to be next this is a lesson showing like china that this can happen well china china's uh attempt at peace negotiations in ukraine was all grooming for them to be like well you let russia do this so why can't we that's literally all their goal was and this is all their goal is for any of these peace deals people don't realize and i it doesn't make sense, and I feel like it's out of desperation, but people make deals with China not realizing that China only makes deals to benefit itself. Of course, of course. It, it's, it, there is no other standard. If China doesn't benefit, you get no deal. Of right? course. And this is why I think that Australia, and this is, this is like, I don't know, maybe my most controversial opinion on China, but we should just be like, oh, you like communism? All your shit is ours now. Eat shit. The port no, is and didn't you uh, like, didn't you go to the Darwin port? Did you actually go through with that? Oh, I'm going to go through with that, but but basically, um, <laughs> well, basically, let me know when you do because I'll come film it and we'll fucking yeah, yeah, yeah but, it. But, but, <laughs> but basically, though, um, my position is if they try and invade Taiwan, just nationalize like every Chinese yes. government. Look, I I think got to militarily defer, deter China from invading. I think we are still like when people are saying oh it could happen next year. Like I think. It is such a massive logistical... It's not going to happen next year. Uh, they're not ready. China's not ready. It's as simple as that. Not ready. Like, it is a massive logistical exercise. That said, though, they could blockade Taiwan, and that would be a massive, massive... Like, that would be a disaster, and people would die from famine in Taiwan. It would be horror. If they have the power to do that. Economic... Like, like if they invade Taiwan, the semiconductor industry will be completely destroyed. Like, like and so much of that is, like, you know intellectual property like how do you transfer that 
Like you can't. How do I you like? I mean, conductor industry won't be destroyed. Yeah, true. But but what I'm saying though is like, I don't think it's necessarily economic. The like the motivation to invade Taiwan's not economic. It's more like identity politics. It's it's basically like the Russian in. It's it's very much similar to the Russian obsession. Uh, I would say it's both. It simply goes back to the legit, founding legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. The fact that it was it was never under Chinese Communist Party control, and I think. So much of Xi's attempt to legitimize himself is now grounded in Chinese nationalism because they have moved away from performance legitimacy in a way, considering the economy is naturally slowing down just due to demographics. So I think, I think it is mainly sort of like an identity politics obsession, like we, like Taiwan must be returned to the motherland because this is like our sacred territory. I think it's very much similar to the Russian obsession with Ukraine. I way. also don't believe Putin's whole thing about how Ukraine is Russian and that whole idea. I think that he's been lying about that from the start. To okay, I have takes. I have what? takes. Wait, 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 wait. Let's, let's hear from Ace. <laughs> what do you want to hear about? I just wanted to see because we, we haven't heard from you in a minute. You want my on Taiwan? We never. We, I don't think you ever talk about Taiwan. Yeah, very suspiciously quiet on Taiwan there, Ace. I'm, I'm a promise you bye. No, but I, I, I I'm kind of with John here in the sense that it's like there, there's, there's a reason why I think I'm. Uh, the U.S. is willing to take a more like strategic and hardline approach to it, because a because of the semiconductor and microchip kind of industry that revolves around Taiwan, which for them is more valuable than say like wheat in Ukraine, which goes usually out to poorer countries. No Taiwan, no F-35. Yeah, exactly. It actually affects us. And then um, uh, the, the, other, the other aspect of it is, is I think they, they do want to also avoid war as much as possible, just given like how tied up america and china are together it's not just people always bring up how we always buy chinese shit but the chinese also buy and like yeah that we're like 50 percent of their economy or something yeah. they they buy a lot of our agricultural products just like as an example like both countries are very much tied into each other economically so it, it's in both countries best interest to avoid a war in taiwan and i think in order to do that kind of like john said it's like the u.s is going to need to continue. I don't think we have to make economic concessions to China, but we kind of have to continue our economic relationship, if that makes sense. I am more on the, the page of we should cut China off completely until they concede. Um, it's kind of aggressive, a bit more aggressive than sanctions, but at this point, they're committing genocide. I don't think we should fuck around with them that much. Like, would, would we, like, look what happens when you fuck around with Nazi Germany. Don't send them money, send them arms, right? all you need to do taiwan don't really need to america's kind of armed them already they're yeah, pretty no, america has, taiwan taiwan not defend itself. america has to do it mm. the they problem have a choice the problem with taiwan self-defense is they've they've bought too many kind of like prestige weapons like the massive tanks and the massive jets and stuff like that when really they need to be investing massively in just like you know just like just for example like like you just need billions of javelins and like, and basically you need yeah. almost like kind of like. If China makes landfall in Taiwan, it's over. Yeah, it's over. America has to do mm. it. They're the only ones who can. America has it's, to be there to say it, no. It's it's and also you have unacceptable. To have a president in the office yes. who's willing to say no when it happens, and that's yeah. what China is waiting for as well. Because if somebody like Trump gets in there, China knows that they can make deals with Trump, that yeah. they can make concessions with Trump. And that they can basically get their war condoned. 
this is kind of any you can chime in, but this is more a question for Drew because we we did do like a leaders tier list recently. Do you think like do you think like things would be better if there was someone other than Xi Jinping in office in terms of in terms of China's like I guess you could say like human rights record, just kind of generally how things like go on within China, or do you think it'd be about the same? Look, Xi Jinping is just the Chinese Communist Party mask off. Like, oh. like, remember, it was Deng Xiaoping, the great reformer who sent the tanks into Tiananmen Square to massacre the students. If you compare him to the other leaders, he's almost as bad as Mao. But like when you talk about Deng Xiaoping, he was very important for China. But then you also have to contrast it with Tiananmen Square. Also, also, he's it's interesting, like he's quite different to Mao in one way in that like Mao liked to kind of cultivate chaos for chaos's sake, whereas Xi is very much hardline control, discipline, like really hardcore totalitarian. That's model. why I don't even refer to them as communist anymore. They're a fascist ethnostate. Well, I see it They're as the modern Nazi Germany, like the Nazi party. They're a modern Nazi That's party. It is. Right? Really? We need to stop calling them communists because they're not. They're fascists. I mean, Tibet so is just Poland. Yes. Well, yeah, in a way. Yeah. As the, the best estimate is that up to, like, there are estimates that one-fifth of Tibetans were killed, basically, as a result of the invasion and occupation. Like, that is going up there with one of the, like, as a proportion of, of a people, that is, like, one of the most brutal genocides in history. Fucking hell. But, like, but like one-fifth, you know, it's, it's yeah. still, it's, it's almost getting up to that level. Like, it, it devastated the Tibetan people massively, massively. Interesting. Um, do you think that the the governments in the global north are inspired by the control that China has over its population, and therefore are trying to implement it themselves? Oh, okay, that's such a good question. Look, Davos loves it. Like the the corporate elites at Davos, they really admire Xi Jinping. Um, they were saying this man is like a. So there, there's this um Labour politician in New South Wales, state politician. Jason Yatsen Lee representing the area of Strathfield and he's a young he's a young Davos global leader and I he still has this tweet up and it's from 2017 and it was during Xi Jinping's address to Davos and he was like wow Xi Jinping has given an amazing address to Davos talking about openness and trade like amazing like you can look this up and like it is amazing like I think they wouldn't admit it now, maybe, because Xi has gone so mask off since 2019 with Hong Kong and Tibet and the Uyghurs and stuff like that. But if you look, even if you just look at like, look at like Tim Cook, look at like the actions of the top sort of business elite around the West. A lot of the top German companies, they love China still. Tim Cook loves China. Elon Musk, man, I still, I like earnestly believe that Elon Musk, like I, I earnestly believe China has Elon Musk by the balls because he's basically got like, no tax on his Shanghai Gigafactory. And, um, he's and they, another one. And they and they make sure that the workers don't strike and everything. Like and in return, like he came out like this year and he said, like, oh, you know, why doesn't Taiwan just become one country, two systems model yes. like Hong Kong? Like I, I think honestly Elon um is pretty captured and, and he talked glowingly like saying like oh you know like the Chinese Communist Party governance like is amazing and like just talking up the Chinese Communist Party and there it, it, it's certainly the case that there is a big section of like the Western business elite then they look at China and they look at the Communist Party and what they see they don't see like you know the Marxist Leninist ideology they just see you know a hardline authoritarian government that crushes labor rights and makes sure there's no independent trade unions and make sure no one strikes and they yeah, just perfect see, for capitalism they just see yeah, dollar signs yeah and yeah. they look at it and they love it they love it and so 
I, I've always been trying to say, like, the whole time that I've been campaigning against the Chinese Communist Party, at one point someone was trying to say, like, Drew, you're just, like, this far-right anti-communist. Like, well, I say, look at the Chinese Communist Party's policies. Look at how they actually, like, repress workers' rights so brutally in China. Like, anyone on the left should wake up and realize, like, you know, this is not necessarily, like, a leftist state. I've always seen myself, basically, as, like, social democrat, center-left, everything. But they, they just... And I was inspired by Bernie Sanders and everything. But they just, like... Like, the social alternative people particularly they just decided they hated me so much in 2019 because I held that first protest and they wanted to like kind of infiltrate the follow-up protest and we kind of like stopped them from doing that and I still remember like Priya D the leader of the social alternative in Brisbane she um she called me up and she was like shut down this protest it's going to be a racial program against Chinese students if you don't shut down this protest because if you don't shut down this protest we'll make sure that everyone in the left in Australia knows you're racist I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, you're white people leading a protest against China. I was like, but Priya, the Uyghurs, the Tibetans, the Hong Kongers, they all back us. They want us to protest it. They're the ones that want to protest, but they're scared for their families back home. So we're trying to help them. And she was like, no, you have to shut it down or I'm going to make sure every person on the left. Yep. And like, and she went around to like the UQ Pacific Islanders club and like got them to condemn me. And they, she went mm -hmm. down around to the UQ Greens club, got them to, to condemn me, like went to, um, went, found some like socialist lecturer in Sydney, this guy, Dave Brophy, who's probably the only white Australian who can actually speak Uyghur, but he hasn't dedicated his <sighs> career to stop the Uyghur genocide. His entire career is just basically focused on how do we stop the hatred towards China emanating from Australia. I wasn't doing the protest to prove a point. I wasn't trying to do the protest to be like, as an anti-woke thing going like, I'm a white man and I should be allowed to talk about China. It wasn't, mm -hmm. that wasn't what was motivating me. What was motivating me was my Uyghur Tibetan and Hong Konger friends who just held that rally with me, who we all got assaulted and, and my Uyghur friends like, and that my Chinese friends have got family members in China who are now being visited by secret police. They're all terrified. And like, what, we're just going to let them win? These people should not be taken seriously. They should be ridiculously and re relentlessly mocked. Comparing you know, them to Nazis is the best way to do it because look, they hate them. Disgusting. If you look at, like, there, there are a couple of people names that I want to mention here. Keating is one. Bob Carr's, Bob Carr's another. Another person, Guy, Run Guy Rundle, Guy Rundle or whatever, at Crikey Magazine, like a, a semi-famous semi <laughs> writer. Like, holy fuck, man. Like, if you, okay, if you look at Guy Rundle, I, I will find you the most cooked Guy Rundle article on Taiwan where he basically says Taiwan has eternally been part of Chinese history in time and space, like in a metaphysical way. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's just fucking ethnic irredentist shit. Like, why are you doing hard, hardcore fascist Han nationalism? And this guy himself, he's not like a tanky. He's not like a cooked, he's not like a cooked tanky. He's not that bad. But mm -hmm. it, it just, it's kind of like, remit, it just kind of demonstrates the level of like lack of, the sort of ignorance of the mainstream Australian left. So this guy, Professor Ben Shaw, Ben Saul, he's the Chalice Chair of International Law, University of Sydney. So like, obviously like, you know, he's quite a big guy. Mm, and he had this tweet today criticizing Penny Wong, sort of supporting the Keating position against AUKUS. So he goes, Penny Wong's speech confirmed that there is a deep contradiction at the heart of Albanese's government foreign policy because it, between it, between its vision for a multipolar Asian future and its complete alignment with US policies that are quite incompatible with that vision. So he says this, he's trying to like make it all woke and like, oh, you know, a multipolar Asian future, you know, as, and basically this is the Keating thing, right? Like the Paul Keating thing is Australia has this, in Paul Keating's mindset, this is his like sort of ideological, this is the ideological background for why he's like so anti-Taiwan, pro-China. So when he was, when he came, when he was growing up, Paul Keating, he was growing up in the era of the cultural cringe where like Australia was like quite a like closed off, you know, Anglo country. We had the white Australia. White Australia. Yeah, literally white Australia. And so like he was like, obviously when he came to power, like it was already, it was 20 years, 25 years after white Australia had been abolished. But he was like so keen on saying that we should completely move against like our sort of ties, traditional ties with the West and just 
find our future in Asia. And like, that's a great idea. I agree with that. Like, you know, as an, as an Australian, like I'm so interested in like, you know, just Cambodian politics, Vietnamese politics, Indonesian politics, Taiwanese politics. I was going to the library the other day at UQ. I was just like picking off, picking up books off the shelf, like about East Timor and history and stuff. Like we should be investing in our region. It's so interesting. This is our region, Asia. Like, and I love the fact that Australia is a multicultural country. So we do invest in the region. We, uh, we try and steal oil from them. Yeah, I know. Like, Australia, has, Australia has this horrible history as well. So Keating starts from that point, right? And it's understandable that he starts from that point. We should find our future in Asia, blah, blah, blah. But basically where it all starts to fall down for Keating is he doesn't care about Asian human rights. He doesn't care about, you know, the human rights of like East Timor or Taiwanese or whatever. All he, what he means by we should find our future in Asia is like, we should just be friends with dictatorships. Like, so he was a really good friend of Suharto, for example, like the brutal dictator in Indonesia who was responsible for the one third of East Timor being basically eradicated through genocide. He was also responsible for the one million people getting killed as part of the Jakarta method. You know, that book by Vincent Bevins. Keating was friends with this guy and yet all the tankies in Australia are now holding up Keating because Keating's like anti-Orcus. It's this really weird kind of like red-brown nexus where like, like Keating's actually come at this from the right. That's what people don't understand. People think he's come at this from the left because he's anti-American or whatever. He's come at this from the right from the perspective of someone who like was friends with Suharto and friends with all these Asian dictators. And he doesn't like the fact that, you know, there are people talking about human rights and people talking about Taiwan. So he talks about Taiwan as just a rock in the sea. And, it, and he talked about when he was when he was asked about um, democracy in Taiwan, he said, what? Oh, they've had municipal elections for 20 years. What we're going to have World War Three for municipal when, elections. When you say friends with Suharto, like how 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 close are we talking here? Really close. Like he was so when Suharto was overthrown, he like so so Keating lost election in like 1996 in a horrible landslide. Like it was like the worst performance of the Labour Party in Australian history. You'd think that's the end of his career, but he actually flew into fucking like Jakarta to try help Suharto when Suharto was facing the massive protests in Indonesia, like during the Asian financial crisis, and people were trying to overthrow him, like. Keating flew in to try help Suharto. That's how fucking crazy this guy is. Okay, and so, he, they were, so they were good. They were like good, good friends. Yeah, and, and he wrote a, he wrote um, and he wrote an obituary for Suharto. And so like when Suharto died, basically Keating wrote this absolutely feral obituary where he goes like, the Australian media never quite forgave Suharto for the Balibo Five. So if you you guys wouldn't know this because you're American, but it's like this big thing in Australian history. Like, basically, there were five Australian journalists that were mown down and executed by the Indonesian military because they were trying to film in East Timor. And, like, Keating was basically saying, like, for this mistake, we've crucified the Indonesians for 30 years. And, like, and, like he was just going, like, he was actually attacking the memory of the Balibo Five, which is just crazy because that was, like, that was, like, a crucial thing for the Australian left for a long time. Like, the Australian left really coalesced around the East Timor cause and everything. And Keating, like, viciously hated the East Timor cause, hated anyone who opposed Suharto. And yet all these people who love the East Timor cause. So for example, here's a beautiful example, right? So I go to the UQ library the other day. I'm just, I'm getting off, I'm getting books off about East Timor because I'm trying to make a video at the moment about his, about Keating's ties with Suharto. And um, there was a book on the Balibo Five and Mary Kostakidis, this lady who was the presenter for SBS News for like 30 years. She was like one of the most famous news presenters in Australia. And these days she's just gone fully cooked, tanky. Like she, she retweeted Scott Ritter. She put up a tweet about like, Quote Scott Ritter, Ukrainians must be put down like rabid dogs. And she's just putting up this shit. Like she's so far gone, fascist, tanky, insane. And Mary Kostakidis, I, I found this book from when she used to be normal. And it's the Balibo Five. And she's got the blurb on the front cover going, this is amazing journalism about the Balibo Five. Lately, she's been the number one cheerleader of Keating on Twitter because he's been attacking Labour for AUKUS. 
And like Keating wrote an obituary going, how dare the Australian media attack Sahato for the Balabo Five and stuff. So it's this really weird like coalition that has now started to emerge. And Professor Ben Saul, so he has this quote where he's like, Wong's speech confirms that, you know, the Albanese government isn't really serious about a multipolar future in Asia. You know, it sounds like a beautiful idea, the multipolar future. You know, we should all, no more Western domination of Asia. We'll all have a beautiful family of nations. But like, what does it actually mean? I mean, in concrete terms, it is a dog whistle for let China invade Taiwan with no repercussions. And so there's this beautiful quote that my friend wrote, and I just want to basically read it out. Because So you go back to, through this guy's timeline, Professor Ben Saul, and it's the same with Keating, it's the same with Mary Kostakidis, it's the same with Professor Ben Saul. These people, they're all really, really pro-Indigenous Australia. So like they're really progressive in Australian politics. And Keating was actually like almost enlightened when it came, like as a prime minister, his Indigenous policy was almost enlightened compared to what became before him because he was like talking about land rights. He was one of the first Australian prime ministers to really acknowledge the brutality of what was done to the Indigenous peoples. So they've got this like, you know, enlightened view. But if once it crosses the Australian border, like, oh, Taiwan's a rock in the sea. Who cares about the indigenous peoples of Taiwan? China should come in and have execution death squads for everyone who lives, who's advocated who's advocated independence for Taiwan. So this was a beautiful quote by um, my friend. He goes, the same pattern as Bob Carr, Hugh White, John Menendez, Keating, Ben Saul, Mary Kostakidis, and almost patriarchal self-appointment as guardian of indigenous nations in public. But the moment you cross that Aussie border, the benign patriarch is replaced by the core racism of paternalism and dismissal of non-state actors everywhere, even when they're actually a state except Palestine. So they're, they're work, like these people are super woke on Australian politics, super woke on indigenous issues in Australia, but you cross the border, except for the one issue of Palestine, they're like, Taiwan can sink into the sea, kill 25 million people. We've just got to do everything possible to avoid offending China. It's insane. This is what we're dealing with. And so that's where we are at Australia. The left has gone so cooked on Taiwan. And that, that guy, Rundle guy, that I wanted to bring up his, his story, oh, my God, it was so feral. He was just saying, like, Taiwan has always been a part of China in time and place. I, don't, I know we've gone a little bit too far, but can I quickly get that tweet up? I think I posted it. This guy is supposed to be, like, one of the most woke progressive writers in Australia. And it's so fucking cooked what he writes about Taiwan. He goes, China owns Taiwan. It owns it geographically and historically in space and time. Like, holy fuck, what a Nazi thing to say. Like, oh that is God. so imperialist and colonizer. Like, holy fuck. How do you even come up with that, man? That's, that's, that guy is supposed to be like one of the, like, the top socialist writers in Australia today. Like one of the guys of the resistance. And he goes, China owns Taiwan in space and time forever. Like, holy fuck. Imagine if someone talked like that about, like, British colonization in India. You'd say it's a fucking Nazi. But this guy's yeah. talking like that about Taiwan. They did at one point. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know. Who knows? I don't actually know why the Australian left got this cooked. I don't know how it even started. Like, because they they're just... not left wing. 